This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. I'm John Dunn, and I am not an animal control officer or field services officer, which is the preferred nomenclature today. In fact, I've never even been on a ride-along, which I definitely need to correct. So whenever I have the opportunity to hear from people in that work, I listen closely. How do field services professionals approach cases in the field of cruelty, neglect? Where is that line? When do they impound or when do they support the pet owners? And how do they work with pet owners to keep the pets with their people? Before we get to that, a reminder, make sure you subscribe to the Best Friends Podcast wherever you listen. I mean, how embarrassing would it be when a colleague or friend brings up the latest episode to you and you haven't listened yet because you didn't get the notification? And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating and a review podcast at bestfriends.org. That is our email. We always love to hear from you. Ideas for episodes, guests, feedback, or just to say hi, podcast at bestfriends.org. Now, whether you are a field services officer or not, today's episode is a thought-provoking conversation around a topic that matters to all of us. Keeping families together, navigating the blurry lines between neglect, cruelty, and lack of access to care. That's the title of a recent town hall offered by the Best Friends Network. Moderated by Scott Giacopo, the director of National Municipal and Shelter Support for Best Friends, the town hall featured the director of Pinal County Animal Care and Control, Audra Michael, April Moore, the chief officer of Animal Services for Kansas City Pet Project, and Nick Walton, manager of National Municipal and Shelter Support for Best Friends. So let's jump into some of these questions, and I'm gonna start with you, Audra. Audra, I know you started off as an officer and then worked your way up through the ranks to become the director of the department. When you first started, what was the philosophy regarding impounding animals that you believed were in violation of the cruelty laws? And and how has that changed since then? Well, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Everybody, Um, my name is Audra and I started as an officer in 2011. So it wasn't that long ago that I was an officer. And when I first started, it was very, very, um, cut and dry. You go out, you pick up dogs if you feel that they're not being taken care of, if they're running at large, if, you know, you you see some sort of neglect or anything, you cite for every single person you come across, you cite for no license. It's like, that's it, cut and dry. We were busting out of the seams all the time. So it was a lot to take, you know, at first. And there's only a core few of us left that were from those old days. Later on, it started moving towards, well, why can't we just help these people? You know, why can't we do something to keep the animal in the home rather than bring it here to the facility? And as I've been going to these conferences and I've been learning that this is actually a thing that's happening all over the United States, you know, it's not just you know, my idea or anything, that it is actually working and it is a lot better. And it's it's helping the entire staff because we have less animals to care for. We are doing something that's good for the community. It's making us not seem like we're dog catchers. We're actually there to help the community and be public servants. You know what I mean? So that's where we're, we're going now. And we've been doing it probably actively for about a year and a half now. But when you roll up on an animal that is, you know, you believe is being neglected, and I don't want to say, you know, I think one of the things we really need to do is separate 
cruelty from neglect. You know, I mean, if you roll up on someone and the dog's been getting beaten by with a two by four, which unfortunately some of us have had that happen, it, it, it's different than than what we're what we really want to work through tonight in talking about you know neglect versus. Uh, lack of resources. You know, so right. you pull up on a house that, you know, there's a skinny dog, we'll say, out in the yard. You know, at what point do you decide, you know, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna impound this dog and charge this person with cruelty versus, you know, I'm going to help this person. I mean, what, at what point do you make that decision? When do you say enough is enough? So I think it's very important that you, you decipher what's cruelty and what's neglect. And cruelty, like you said, is active cruelty. You're strangling a puppy. You're doing something horrible to an animal actively. You, you're doing that because you want to. And in our ordinances, it says intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly, you know, keeping an animal from food, water, shelter, or medicine, you know, vac vaccines. Um, passive neglect or cruelty is, you know, not not grooming them, no shelter in weather conditions, stuff like that. So when you go out into the field, you have to be aware of where are you at? What is the diversity of the people you're dealing with? What kind of an area is it? Is it a low income area? Is this a culture thing? Do people only know that the dog is outside on a chain? That's all they've had their whole entire life. And as much as it sounds like they're not how do, how do you, what do you mean you don't know that it's not good to tie up your dog in 120 degree weather? Because I'm in Arizona, you know, how do you, how can you be that stupid? Well, believe it or not, people don't, they don't really think twice about it, you know? At that point, there should be nothing that we can't do to help that person if they truly want to keep their pet. And they all love their pet. They just don't love their pet the way we love our pet. You can't be judgmental. You cannot just say, I would never do that to my animal. I just can't believe you treat your animal like this. You have to step back, think about what you're doing and where you're at, and then you have to actually help. And it takes a big person to look past all that and actually say, what can we do to help you? I don't want your animal. I, I don't want your animal. What can we do to help you? Now, you go ahead and you help somebody, the skinny animal, which could be an underlying disease. It could be something. Maybe it needs medical treatment. Maybe they need food. Maybe it's as simple as helping them with food. And then you don't have to bring the animal in. You don't have to try to get it adopted. You don't have to pay for its medications and alters and all that other kind of stuff. And it's actually in a home that is the only thing it knows. It knows no couch. It knows no difference. It doesn't know. Just me, you have to make life better for the animal, period. That is why you're there. You're going to help these people make that pet's life better. And then you proceed. How can I help you? What can I do to help you? When that ends is when you continue to go back and go back again and go back again and do your follow-up. And this is where a lot of officers drop the ball. They don't follow up. You know, they say, okay, I did this one good thing for them and everything. And then they move on and they never come back. Well, I'll hit you with a headline just because, you know, you helped them that one time doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're going to be the best pet owner in the whole world. You have to keep on them so that they go, oh God, I gotta go make sure that my dog's got water. I gotta go make sure that my dog is not tangled up on the chain. You have to actually follow through because you have to think about that pet and what is the best thing for that animal. And if they can't hold up their end of the bargain, then you might wanna start looking at it in a different way. Hey, you know what, I don't know. Do you, do you really want this animal? Do you, is there something, you know, maybe we should just take it. It's a very gray area and it's, it's definitely hard. Yeah. And I think also, too, when you have the officers that are doing what, you know, what you're referring to as follow ups, um, it also I think, you know, if it's done properly, it can be more of a relationship builder within the community. So it's exactly. not like, you know, I mean, I've always seen it 
not so much as I'm going to someone's house to make sure they're following up with the law and they're still in compliance. It's it's more like, hey, Audra, how you doing? Remember, I was here last week. I just wanted to you know check up on on Sam, your dog, and see how everything was going. And oh, hey, by the way, I heard there was this new dog training class, or or you know the new the new pet supply store down the street opened up, or whatever. Um, you know, using it as a way to build relationships within the community. You know, and I know I, I know you play some role, uh, you know, with new officer training and so forth. How do you teach your officers? those decision-making skills, because I can imagine as a new officer, you know, it's like, am I making a mistake? Am I, you know, should I take this dog? Or, you know, he seems like a nice guy, but what if he's lying to me? And I know that, you know, I think back on my first days as an officer, how, you know, how intimidating it can be to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. You know, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you teach your officers how to make those, those decisions? I tell my officers that I completely support their decision. However, <laughs> I would like to be in the conversation and let's discuss it. So they all have a P card so that they can buy food or a dog house or help with fencing or something like that. They all have the, the resources to be able to do that. I also ask them, what is the outcome you seek? Do you feel that it's the best outcome to remove this animal from this situation? Or is it better to just educate and show them what, what is maybe they need to do and, and, and give them the resources to do it? And then once you've done all that, if it turns into a really horrible situation and you end up taking the animal anyway, you have something when you do go to court showing the judge, hey, we tried. We tried with this person, you know, we tried to get them to take care of their animal and they chose not to do it. And the animal ended up dying out on a tie out, you know, because it was overheated. We did our part. They didn't do their part. They have to remember, I always ask them, what is it that you're looking to do? Are you looking to punish this person because they had an attitude with you or you don't like them? Or, you know, what is it that you are looking to do? Well, I just want them to take care of their animal. Well, then help them. Help them do it. I have a great staff and they're awesome. They're rock stars. They do, they, they don't even give me any lip whatsoever. You know, I mean, they're just like, and I think about the old days. That would never happen in the old days. No way would that have happened. It would have not been something that they would have been open to at all. That's the difference. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you, Audrey. And I actually wanna, I wanna jump over to April now. And because when you talk, we, we talked a little bit about the new officers and you mentioned the older officers, you know, back in the day. April, I know that you, you know, you too started out as an officer and worked your way up through the ranks. And I know that you've also ran, uh, taken um, the helm, so to speak, of agencies where there were officers who had also been uh, trained in that in enforcement-based, we'll call it, in enforcement-based based methods. What strategies would you recommend to people when you, like, if I were a new chief and I, uh, and I came in, I said, boy, a lot of my, my guys have been doing this for years and they're not thinking that way. What strategies would you recommend to me to, to help me move my officers into that, into that mindset, so to speak? Yeah. So when we think about effective strategies for bridging those philosophical gaps, what we're really talking about are open communication. We're talking about building trust and we're talking about setting expectations. We have to be willing to work at building relationships and rapport with our veteran officers. We have to be committed to being an active listener. Don't passively listen, like really be committed to hearing from their perspective what they're what they're sharing with you and we don't always do that really well as humans but <laughs> the great news is the more we practice the better we get but we also have to remember that every interaction we have is an opportunity to build trust you know it's through that trust and 
that developed understanding that we get to the sort of the root or the foundation of those philosophical beliefs. And that's when we start to really kind of understand how wide that gap may be. And once we get to that point, we can start bridging those gaps. You also want to set performance measures. You know, if you're going into a, a new agency and it's taking a different direction, well, we want to set performance measures around what we're trying to do. So if you want your officers to help people, well, then we need to measure the time they're spending on engagement activities. We need to measure what types of resources they're connecting community members to. And we want to review citations. So, you know, Audra's, to Audra's point earlier, you know, this is an opportunity to sit down and talk with your officers about what they're experiencing and try to understand from their perspective why they made the decisions they made. You know, what is their litmus test for issuing a citation or trying to secure a warrant versus taking a different direction? You know, generally speaking, my litmus test is if I can give somebody information or resources and they're going to take that and they're going to do better by their animal and that animal's going to thrive, then that's a family that I'm going to continue to commit to work with. Lastly, you know, the other bit of this, and I, I think most agencies are sort of on board with this at this point, but it's important to state, if any agencies are still accepting owner surrenders in lieu of citations, they just need to stop doing that. You know, among other things, it's so detrimental to building trust. It, it just it undermines the whole process. Yeah, and thank you for that. That is one of my biggest pet peeves is, yeah. well, if you just give up the animal, I won't write you a citation. It, it doesn't do anything. And, you know, all, all of us have been out in the field. And if there's one thing we all know is that when we take an animal away from someone, they get another one. Yeah. Uh, they go out and get another one and that cycle starts and we just keep, it's a revolving door sometimes. And, and I think that's really one of the things that I love about, you know, I, and I hate to call it the new way of, you know, people looking at this, but the community based or the community engagement or however, whatever term you want to use for it. And I know Nick's going to talk a little bit about that, but that's really where, you know, people, when, when you look at the, the, the effectiveness of, of this way of doing it, overall, it's really beneficial across the board. Now, no, absolutely. That's a good point. Abel, you were, you know, you were, you were an officer in Austin, Texas, when they were more focused on enforcement. And then they made that transition, um, which is, you know, a model uh, for other agencies to look at, you know, still today. How did that switch happen with you when you, you know, when you were in there, because you were part of that transition? What, like, what kind of obstacles did you hit? How did that make you feel? Um, you know, when all of a sudden you went from writing a citation, to giving out dog houses or whatever the case may be. Yeah, sure. So field services in Austin sort of started making that switch around the time that the city council passed an no-kill resolution along with our 34-point implementation plan. Now that plan was essentially a roadmap for our shelter to achieve a higher level of life saving. So it did a lot of great things, but what it didn't do was include animal control. And so, you know, we found ourselves trying to figure out how to marry our animal control department with this, you know, this plan to really reposition ourselves within our community. What we figured out was that by keeping pets and families together and working to empower our community through those conversations, through building trust, through delivery of resources, we increased our community's capacity to care for the pets. In order to do that, though, effectively, we had to leave all of our biases at the door, which is not always easy. And I think uh, Audra touched on that as well. We had to truly commit 
without judgment to meeting people where they're at and then working to deliver them the resources or information they need to um, to be successful or to work through whatever barrier or challenge they're facing. And by practicing true empathy in those interactions, we were better positioned to solve for the best possible outcome for both the pets and the people. That's great. I, 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 love, I love bringing up empathy because that's something that we all need to practice more of when we're in the field, um, especially when we're in the field. Um, you know, and our days just get frustrated and, and we sometimes lose sight of that. So thank you for that. So overall, how, what, like, how did the community um, and, and, and the animals, obviously the animals in particular, how did they really benefit from this new way of doing things that you were doing there? So, you know, it's kind of, I was thinking about, um, you know, I was thinking about Austin's transition and sort of, you know, our, and you know, I've spoken about it many times. And so, you know, the, um, in thinking about sort of our walk down this path, a while back, one of my Texas colleagues was remarking on our 30,000 annual animal intake just a decade ago. And we think about it in 10 years, we reduced our annual intake, but nearly half that, which is remarkable. And she asked, you know, where did all these animals go? Well, they didn't go anywhere. They were still in our community, right? They were in their homes. And so one of the biggest benefits to our community is that their families were staying together. That allowed our shelter to then focus on the animals in greatest need. And it was because our animal control officers worked with our community to keep pets safe at home. They built trust and they repositioned themselves as a resource. And consequently for the Austin community, life saving skyrocketed. Um, well, in a few minutes, we have some questions we're going to throw at everybody, but let's get to Mr. Walton here. Nick, you actually came into a department and you've, you've, you were in ACO for a while outside of Atlanta. Um, you came into a, a department that was making that transition when you arrived and you were actually trained by someone who may have had that more enforcement-based philosophies. But from what I know about you, you never really bought into that uh, right out of the gate. Um, you know, Tell me, you know, tell us a little bit about what made you go the other route and be just like feeling like it's just not right. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely fair to say that we were in a transition like right when I got hired. And so I can't think of a better time, honestly, for me to start. But I remember like it was yesterday, there was a case where there was just a skinny brown dog in the backyard. Dog had shelter. The dog had water. But the optics of the situation with the, with the dog being skinny, you know, that was the main priority for my training officer at the time. Now, also the owner. Owner was cooperative. Right. The owner was uh, was open to, to showing us the animal and, and everything of that nature. And there was absolutely no reason for what we ended up doing, which is impounding the animal and issuing citations. OK, and now this is, uh, you know, Audrey and April both touched on it earlier. It's it used to be black and white, like we enforced the book. And so I watched it happen and I watched the cycle unfold in front of me with this particular case. The cycle that you just referred to uh, where, you know, we the dog was entered into a overcrowded shelter, right? And, and, you know, it just gets kind of lost in the mix at that point. And, you know, we're fighting for space, fighting for adoptions and all of this. And, you know, who knows the sicknesses, the list goes on, but also then the owner goes to court, right? And then the owner gets fined like $300. And then the owner has difficulty paying that $300 and it gets caught up in the legal system, right? And then what happens next is we're riding down by his house and there's another dog in the backyard. Okay. And so he got the dog from somewhere else. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me to go the other way because I got to see the exact cycle that you're talking about, like unfold directly in front of me. I also want to want to point out, I was able to ride with another officer 
who kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there is another way to approach these conversations, right? You don't have to be badge heavy. Uh, instead of saying, hey, I'm Officer Walton with Fulton County uh, or uh, XYZ uh, County Animal Services, you can, you can approach that door and say, hey, how's it going? I'm Nick, you know, and I see that there's a dog in the backyard. It looks like a little skinny, you know, do you need any help with that? Like I have dog food on my truck. And so like, I understand that this situation is very specific, but seeing that officer and the way that he interacted with the public opened my eyes to the fact that there is another way to do this. It all comes down to the animal, right? What is the best thing for this animal? And so I, I was in a perfect storm, to be honest with you, Scott. Yeah. And I, and I know your department came out of that much better for it. And I know they're, they're doing some great work out there now. Um, I actually talk to your old boss all the time. Good man. Good man. Um, well, before you left and joined my team, you, were, you, you became the FTO. So you were actually in charge of training the new, newer officers. How did you train? And I, you know, I asked the, I asked everyone else this, the same thing. How do you teach those critical skills? Like, you know, at what point do you, you, you look at a skinny dog and I'm using skinny dog, but we can use skinny dog, dog out without shelter. Um, you know, all of these things that, that technically are violations of the animal cruelty laws. I mean, if you think about it, they are violations, but at what point, like, how do you teach those officers not to just automatically go by the book? Yeah. Look, those lines are blurry. It's a, it's a difficult thing to approach, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is getting a full picture of what you're looking at. Don't look at one specific thing, right? Just because a doghouse is broken doesn't mean you need to only focus on the doghouse. Look at the behavior of the animal, the overall health of the animal. Does the animal have water, food, shelter, right? The environment in which it's kept. Uh, the cooperation of the owner. Are, are there any priors at this location? There's a whole laundry list of things that you need to consider before you make a decision of issuing a citation. And, and another thing, one of the most important things to consider is resources, right? Do you have the availability to provide any resources to mitigate this, this ordinance infraction? Because at the end of the day, that's all that, all that we can do is enforce our ordinances, right? And we, and we talked about meeting people where they are, all this, but at the end of the day, officers do need to provide some form of justification, right? To not remove an animal. And a lot of times that justification is in the form of resources, dog food, uh, dog houses, uh, dog house repair. You don't even need to provide a brand new dog house, right? A lot of times you can just work and get creative with your resources. And whether you've got an extra piece of wood and a couple zip ties, you know, you can, you can really work with the owner and use that time of, like, uh, of working with the owner to fix that problem as a relationship building opportunity. And now you have a friend in the community. Right. And, and that brown dog that I was talking about earlier, we could have had an advocate for our shelter with that owner. He could have told his neighbors about us. And then and then we go and talk to the neighbors. And so that's how you change the way that you're perceived in the community from being a dog catcher to being a welcomed site, if you will. Well, you know, I always say animal control and humane law and all of us, we're heroes in the community and we're problem solvers. You know, Nick, and my next question for you and it has been touched on a little bit, but I want to ask you, like, what do you think? the benefits are. Now, I know the benefits to the department and, you know, I just touched on them and, you know, April talked about the numbers of animals coming into the shelter and all that. But when you and I originally started having conversations about this, the first thing you said that was a benefit to you as an officer to taking this approach, so to speak, didn't have anything to do with the reduction of shelter intake. So share with us your, your, your take on, on how it benefited you as an officer to be less enforcement heavy and more resource uh, uh, geared towards solving problems with resources. Once again, the benefits of this are just, it's a laundry list, right? I mean, and, and it's all encompassing everything from increasing foster and volunteer engagement and Look, the list goes on, 
But the number one thing, and that I always focus on, because I've lived it, I didn't read this from a book, it's officer safety. You are so much safer working in a community where you're trusted and where you're looked at as a positive site. And it's, it's kind of basic math, right? You, you increase positive relationships, you increase you know, your, your association with key members of your communities, and you decrease the friction between the community itself and your municipality or your shelter or the officers or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and just by nature, by simple math, you're going to ha- be able to work much safer. An example of this is one of the first experiences I had uh, in the field was we were riding through an underserved area of Atlanta and all of a sudden we hear boom, boom. And, and it was Coke bottles. People had thrown two full Coke bottles at our truck. And I thought I was, we were being shot at or something. I was scared. But literally a month later, we are on that street and we are shaking hands with people. And we're saying, hey, how you doing, man? Like, nice to meet you. Come on up to the shelter. We got dogs. We got cats. We're giving out dog food to anybody, you know, and, and it was a, uh, it, it turned into a point where I actually coined the nickname and I didn't, I didn't give it to myself. This was given to me, but the dog food man. Right. And so like, instead of the ice cream man riding through, I was able to source enough resources, enough dog food where I was using dog food as almost a form of relationship building tool. And so that same neighborhood that I was getting Coke bottles done at my truck, now I'm safely working and I'm safely being able to handle real actual cruelties if they did exist on that street safely without being harassed or without, you know, it's, we all deal with it across the country. And I also know, I also know the story that you probably weren't going to share that um, one, one day while you were waiting for the owner of a dog, you know, a couple of dogs in a yard to come home, that you were actually invited to sit down on the corner and play poker with a bunch of the guys that were just hanging out on the corner and that you took them up on that offer. I did, but I, I think I think for legal reasons, I have to say that I didn't put any real money on on the game. But yeah, no, I mean, like you you don't have to operate within the the enforcement bubble mindset. Like you can sit down with some folks and, or or shoot some basketball with the local kids. You know, like get out of your truck and engage. Yeah, and you know, you see videos now, you know, on YouTube all over the place of of police officers playing basketball with kids, like you said. And man, I'm just waiting for that day when I see an ACO out there, you know, uh, running around a dog park and acting silly with a dog, and you know, and the family and all that. Any ACOs listening, man, I think that would go viral, and I'd help that go viral. Nick, the the other thing I want to ask you is, you know, and I just want you to share with people one of the things you and I we we go all over the country and we talk to people all over the country. There's a consistent message that you give to every single agency that you talk to. To me, it's a piece of advice that it's the most important piece of advice all over the place. And and if you could quickly just share that with with everyone uh, today, that would be great. Uh, I'd love to. And I appreciate it, Scott. So the term community engagement in of itself is used so incredibly loosely throughout this industry. The term community engagement can mean one thing to one person, another thing to another person. Community engagement to me is not something that you can do for 20 minutes at the end of your shift if you have the time. It's not something that you can do here and there throughout your day. Community engagement to me is a philosophy. It's a mindset. It's something that you take with you on every single call that you work to every single individual that you speak to, no matter the case. It doesn't matter from the left side to the right side of that spectrum. Community engagement is the, I guess, the sails that guides your boat, if you will. 
I, I do like to make that clear because a lot of times people hear community engagement, community outreach, and it gets very technical and this and that and this and that. I believe that it's something that no matter if you're working a skinny dog call or a simple dog at large call or something even more complicated, working with this philosophy and this mindset is going to not only make you safer, it's going to increase your live release rates. It's going to increase, you just go down the list of benefits, um, including advocacy for your shelter, which then increases your fundraising efforts. And we all know that with more money, more mission, as a good friend of ours likes to say. That's exactly right. Well, thank you, Nick. Now I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question. Uh, I'm going to pose it to everyone and Audra, we'll start with you. What were some of the creative ways that you were able to provide resources that kept pets in their homes? And, and were those coming from your agency or a partner agency? I'm thinking of a dog named Milo that we had, and he was a bite dog and he was a giant brindle mastiff. And we had this dog with us for like eight months and the owner was in a relatively low income area. He did not work. He maybe had some other problems as well. He couldn't at the time afford to get the dog back. And we had, you know, tried to work with him. He just didn't have the money to try to get the dog back. Now, this was about a year and a half ago. We eventually ended up keeping that dog for around eight months. And finally, one of the the staff here just called him and said, do you want this dog back if we just bring him back? And he was like, yeah, you would do that for me? And we're like, yeah. So we went there as a group at our shelter and we were looking to see how this dog kept getting out because it was like his second or third bite. And he kept getting out because he was tying him to this little tiny stick in the front yard. And of course, as soon as he saw another dog or something, he broke it and hopped over the fence. And the fence was only like two feet high. So he had this outdoor carport and we ended up, and I'm not going to say me because I am not like a big handyman type person, but I went just to watch, but, and carry some wood, but we went there and we converted his outdoor carport area, which he was not using except to store a bunch of junk. We cleaned it all out for him and we built an enclosure for Milo so that he had a way in and out of the house. He had a pool. He had, you know, everything that he needed. We set this gentleman up with dog food and toys and chews and everything. And actually, we had gotten a grant from Best Friends that allowed us to buy those kinds of things for him along with the wood and everything. And we were able to give him back and we still check on him and he cried when we brought and Milo remembered him from eight months earlier and he cried and he tried to give us a hundred dollars and I said no 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 you keep that money and you just take care of Milo for us and he he is like like Nick and April were saying the, the greatest advocate for us he's like anytime you guys want to come over you don't even have to call just show up just show up that was a team effort and that made us feel so good because we were able to reunite Milo with this gentleman. And honestly, Milo was not a dog we were going to be able to get out because um, I think I was telling you the story last week that he bit a volunteer because he was in my office and she just walked by and he bit her. I mean, this dog was not somebody that was going to be like easily adopted out, you know. So, I mean, and that was just a really good feeling to be able to do that for him. And it really cost barely anything to get that dog back to him. That's my story. <laughs> That's great. I love it. April? So, Scott, I'm going to answer your question a little broadly. When I think about, you know, the, the resources that we give to our community and sort of creative ways for acquiring those resources, what I really think about is the greatest resource we gave our community was our time. And it's really the greatest thing we gave our officers. Because without 
building time into their day. They didn't have time to have those conversations, to get to those root causes of, you know, the, the situations like Audra's talking about with Milo. You know, if officers didn't have time to have those conversations, they didn't have time to go out to the property and see how Milo was getting off the, off the, uh, off the property, well, would Milo be in that situation? For us, when I think about sort of the creative ways that we built that critical resource of time into our staff's schedule, what that looked like was reevaluating what they're spending their time doing, reevaluating what kind of calls they're responding to, and figuring out what we can, what we should be doing, both under policy or under uh, ordinance, figuring out what we should not be doing, and stopping that. And figuring out what we can reallocate to, you know, maybe another division or another role within the organization. So we didn't need an officer to go out for every bite investigation. We could have our dispatcher or an administrative assistant call and get the initial details. They could focus their time and their energy with that pet owner, the dog owner, so that they could do exactly what Audra's talking about. Help them solve for the long term so that we don't continue to have the same issue. And the issue of time is always a concern. I mean, any officer knows that you get in in the morning and you look at your call yep. log, oh my gosh, how am I going to get to all these calls today? Um, so that's a great answer, April. Thank you. Nick, over to you. Same question. Creative ways. All right. So look, I, I think of resources, not necessarily as resources, but a byproduct of relationships. And so the question should be posed of what are creative ways to build relationships? For instance, uh, your local pet supply store. Go in and build a relationship with that manager. You don't have to wait for somebody at your shelter to do it. You as an officer can do this. You don't need to wait for anybody else to make that first move. Get out there and build relationships and, and you're going to start to see resources start to manifest themselves in, in all different kinds of ways, right? There's no one way to do it. Uh, who knows, you know, if this person might have an extra doghouse, they'd be able to donate. My granny always used to say, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Coming from Georgia, I do say granny, and I'm not going to apologize for y'all either. But it's true, you know, and, and if you have a need for resources, then you need to let people know that. But you need to be able to let people know that in, in, a, in a gentle and delicate way without coming across as too strong or anything like that. And so I think that when it comes down to it, resources are a byproduct of relationships. And so how can you build more relationships with people and individuals and businesses Local businesses, don't hesitate. If you got a few minutes, go into a Dollar General and ask for the manager, you know, or a, a dollar store. It doesn't matter, any pet supply store. The people that you speak to on a day-to-day -day basis, right? What if every officer on your team had this mindset? Well, now you have an action team. You have an actual on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground action team that can help funnel resources into your shelter. Not only resources, but now you have lower animal cruelty rates. You have lower call volumes and that frees up more time for more engagement. It's almost a domino effect once it's really taken, taken a hold of by the entire staff. Yeah, and that's so true about the relationships. I remember when I was an officer, I had a kid who um, loved his dog. He was a good kid in a very underserved section of Boston. Um, and he had a piece of plywood propped up against the fence for a shelter. The kid just loved his dog. The family loved the dog. They did not want the dog. The mom didn't want the dog in the house, but this kid was just a really good kid. And I reached out, you know, I went across the street or down the street a little ways to, to a construction site just to get some scrap lumber to try and help the kid a little bit. When the construction team found out what I was doing, man, they grabbed all their tools and wood and went over there and built that kid, you know, that dog, this fantastic dog house. I got their card. I mean, that, that, 
I mean, it, it, it works when you reach out, like, in, you know, going to Walmart or, or, you know, pet supply stores, it works. You can get resources that way, you know, and, and it does. It, it, it comes down to having, as, as it was said, the time and the, 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 the relationships and, and everything that we're doing. Well, thanks, everybody. We do have some questions uh, in the chat that I'm going to um, throw out. So I'm going to start with this one. Should people who surrender their animal because they can't care for them ever receive citations or other punitive measures due to the condition of the animal? Uh, I'm going to throw that one over to you, April. I mean, I was really thinking about just a real short response of no. Yeah. <laughs> just no. Again, it goes back to this idea that we have people in our communities across this nation that struggle and they struggle for a whole host of issues right and it affects their ability to care for their animal in the way that maybe we we prefer if somebody is lacking resources and they're coming to you and they're saying i just can't because i don't have the resources i recognize i don't have the resources and i'm doing what i think is best you don't punish them for that at least not in my, it's not my philosophy. You thank them. You still try to build a relationship with them. You want to try to take that opportunity to connect them with information resources they may need down the road. Because you may be able to, one, reconnect them with their pet, or two, at the very least, get them connected to resources that will either help them as an individual or a family, improve their their uh, situation and you may be able to help that next pet that that family gets because we know they're probably going to get another pet eventually yep. i hate i hate the old the old saying that if you can't afford a pet you shouldn't have a pet right um and we, our job is to go out there and take them away from people so um and i think we're running out of time we have just a couple of minutes left so i do want to give we have three minutes left and i just want to give you guys the opportunity is there anything you guys want to throw out there in the last three minutes that we have yeah, I most definitely do. Keep in mind, there's officer discretion here. And so by no means when we're having these conversations, if that animal if, or if that crosses the line into cruelty, or let's say somebody did come in to surrender an animal, and, and you can clearly tell that this was com coming from a cruel situation, do your job, issue citations, do whatever you, whatever you as an agency does. And don't think that whenever we're having these conversations, we're saying be weak on cruelty. If anything, it's quite the opposite. We just wanna be proactive on preventing the cruelty versus responding after the fact. By no means necessary do I feel that you should let somebody get away with animal cruelty. I just think that we need to really define where that line is in the sand. Is this animal truly suffering? Because that's what it all comes down to. April, Otto, anything you wanna add? Just to kind of piggyback on what Nick was sharing, you know, one of the reasons it's so important to commit to having conversations and building relationships and delivering resources when you can is because that works to interrupt that process. If you can work with a family to stop something from going bad, then you have one for that family, you've one for that pet, and you've one for your community. You, again, have increased the capacity to care. As Nick said, it's not, it's not about negating our responsibilities around ending animal cruelty in our communities, but committing to delivering those resources is such a critical component to helping our pets live healthier, happier lives in our community. Head to bestfriends.org slash podcast. We put up a video recording of the town hall so you can see it in pictures. We also edited this and shortened it just a bit. So again, you can see the full town hall recording with video, bestfriends.org slash podcast.
The producers are Tony Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.